I think we can tie all these pieces together today. Um, there's so much good stuff here. I, and I forgot. I know what I didn't say in the first sermon. I want to not forget it this time. Uh, I think what I want to start us with is the gospel reading here, where there's just this person at a table with Jesus, and he it says, heard these things. And then he says, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. What did he hear that made him say that? What he heard was Jesus saying that the kingdom of God is like a man who gives a banquet. And he throws that banquet for everybody who he doesn't know. He doesn't invite anybody he knows. He just invites the homeless people and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, or, you know, whatever. The people you don't know that you don't want in your house, that's who he throws the party for. That's the end of the parable. And then this guy's like, heaven's going to be awesome. Because he kind of gets it. He kind of sees that Jesus is the God who just gives. And then Jesus says back to this, yeah, but you don't want to come. And to do that, he plays with this other parable that alludes to wisdom's calls. We already talked about Proverbs 9. That's where we're going to go in a moment. But let's just stick with Luke for a moment. Where he tells this parable in response to the, the idea of eating bread. Don't miss this. Eating bread in the kingdom of God. I mean, it's what we're about to do this morning. Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, well, the man gave the banquet. And what he experienced was that all the people he did invite didn't want to come. They had all these reasons. I bought a house. Got married. These are bad reasons. Get married. These are things that take time. They take effort. You can't just roll through life and do these things. So they're not unreasonable requests. But, but they also demonstrate a lack of understanding of who this master is. Because this is not just a friend. This is the king. This is the king. And so when the king finds out that the people who ought to owe him allegiance don't, it says the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, became angry. One of the most powerful and storied, glorified and, and biblical attributes of God is that God's angry. This is how you can know anger is not a sin. Huh? Now, before we start chasing that rabbit, hold on. God is not only angry, God is always angry. Because everything God is, he always is. Yeah. Well, he must not feel it. No, no, his anger is actually kind of good. <laughs> the problem with fallen man's anger is the things we think are injustice aren't really often that big of an injustice. We're just personally offended. And then we ignore the other injustices to other people. So our anger at the injustices we perceive is often quite a wicked thing, no question. And even a righteous man must know when his anger is just better to hold the tongue when you're angry. Just hold the tongue. Just shut up. Don't speak for 15 minutes. It'll help a lot. I mean it. But... God has anger that is permanent. Now, does that mean we can't, we can't personify God as if he's like us in a bodily experience? I mean, Jesus is. 
But what do I mean that he's angry all the time? What I mean is that, as opposed to being somewhere feeling emotions, God hates injustice. Always. Like whenever he sees injustice, he despises it. All he wants is justice. Like an ever-flowing stream with man in his city around this justice forever and ever. And he makes the soil grow for us. And he gives the water and the sun and look what we do. And yeah, he's angry at our injustice. And it's his permanent hatred of evil. And you see it in this master who's giving away the greatest feast there ever was in a kingdom, even wisdom herself crying, as again we'll see in a moment, and Jesus doing it at that time in that place. The leadership all around him, Sadducee, Pharisee alike, they didn't want to come to the party. In fact, they wanted to kill the master. He'll tell another parable about how they think they can kill the master. But this is where you step back and see this. This parable is really about how you should be convinced that when you eat the Lord's Supper, you're in the kingdom of God, rock on Christianity. That's what it does through time and space to us today, okay? But in the moment that he's saying it, while there are people believing that there, that's not a large group. And the group around the outside who are not hearing the good news that Christ is sufficient for you through this parable are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you have to know That at the same moment that Jesus is looking on you with empathy and mercy and saying, go grab them and bring them to my table, and no one else is going to get there, he's looking Pharisees and Sadducees in the eye. He's using the Old Testament Proverbs to tell them they don't know their own law, and he's here to kick them out. And that's why they kill him. That's why they kill him, these kinds of parables. And notice the double level. He's working to comfort you while at the same time destroying your enemy, the one who would separate you from him. So the anger here is the justice with which he visits you. And he goes out with his servants, his messengers, however you want to personify that, angels, pastors, other Christians. It says, come in, fill up my banquet. It will be full. And the election promises of the Bible are that we know on that final day, when those of us who have feasted on the flesh and blood of Jesus rise from the dead, there will be an innumerable host, more than any man in a glance could number, dressed in white robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, singing songs with palm branches in our hands. Oh, and that is all the promise of this parable unless you happen to be one of those who just doesn't have time to come to the Lord's Supper, right? And that's where this can, can kind of hit us here a little bit. It's not just about the Lord's Supper. It's even my pitch on the Proverbs. Not that if you don't go home and ever open the book of Proverbs, therefore you're going to be damned. The question is, when God sends you a messenger and the messenger says this, that, this, that, well, what do you do with it? And if he says to you something like, we live in a dark and evil time that could be the authentic end of the world, and what we need more than anything as a group is to not be idiots together. So let's try to learn what the Bible says about how to be wise. That's not just me pitching you something. That's not a sale. I'm here from God trying to convince you to live today according to the eternity you know will never pass away, even though today will pass away. So jumping from there into Proverbs, yes? Proverbs 9, three sections really in verses 1 through 10, the description of wisdom completing chapter 8, 
which I'll say a little more about here in a moment. Um, and then wisdom's actual cry, which is the one Jesus is saying in Luke to the Pharisees, you're not listening to it. You don't hear me. Huh? And then we have this initial bit of proverbial knowledge. And there have been sections like this in the book up to this point, but most of the sections like verse 7 through 10 here, they happen after chapter 10. So from chapter 1 through chapter 9, the end of it, you have one book by Solomon, a treatise on being wise. And then from chapter 10 to about chapter, I think it's 22, when you get another break, you have the Proverbs of Solomon. So that's what most people kind of think of as Proverbs, that chapter 10 and following. And then this sounds like that, even though it's like a prelude to it. We'll take these ones in, in section. First, who is wisdom? A wisdom who has built her house. Easy answer. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's wisdom in Proverbs 8. The Word, who is God and is with God, but different than the Father somehow. Just It doesn't talk about that in Proverbs 8. It just says that wisdom is, is God. And as we talked, I talked with someone this morning about the Athanasian Creed. Someone had a question from last week. You know, arguments about uh, who is God and how that person is God and, and all this. The Arians who don't like Jesus as God use Proverbs 8 to try to say that he's not. Now, there's a tangent there, but that's how powerful this text is, uh, Proverbs 8. And anybody who's studied Proverbs, they know this is the chapter. Proverbs 8 is the chapter, uh, and it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Now, here's the problem that's really only a problem if you're a modern American living in a time where sexuality is so absolutely out of control that we would look at this description of God as wisdom, as a woman, as a woman, and then have some trouble seeing how that can be Jesus as prophecy. The reason wisdom is described as a woman is quite an anomaly, really, at the end of the day. It's because in Hebrew, the word wisdom is a feminine gendered word. Now, I went really fast past that of the other two services, but you get the English teacher in me this morning. In English, we don't do this. This is why everyone in high school hates learning other languages, because they give you genders to the words, and you just have to memorize them because they don't make sense. They're just there. But they mean there's two different endings to everything. Oh, goodness, that's frustrating. Okay? So, well, Hebrew has a similar feature. In terms of the development of language, I speak as a bachelor's degree in, the, in English, okay? That's what I'm saying here. But as far as the development of language goes... The reason you have gendered language doing what it does is because masculine things will have a harder edge to them. They're a type of thing. And the feminine things will often have a softer edge to them. And from that, you can learn a lot about what that culture used to be when it was smaller and tribal. Who cares, though? Well, we do now because what happened is this feminine gendered word, wisdom, for no particularly theological reason being a female gendered word, then gets picked up by Solomon as the best word to describe what it means to be the eternally begotten wisdom of God, because that's what it is. And as he imagines this and paints a picture and a poem and makes a movie out of it in his own mind, she is naturally a woman because the language is naturally feminine. And this has no bearing whatsoever on the sexuality of God or Jesus. None. Zero. It's just a linguistic feature. We modern people are so silly and stupid, and we hate the Father so much that we can't stand that, and we've had arguments about it for the last hundred years. Nah. It's a picture. It's a prophecy. 
It's a prototype. It's, it's a, it's a pre-foreshadow image. And this lady wisdom, what she is, as I said before, before the reading, if you really want to get to her, she's the perfect religion. But who's the perfect religion? Well, your King Jesus Christ. He is risen. Alleluia. Okay. So, wisdom, the perfect religion, who is Jesus, pre-incarnate, who we really don't have a reason to care that it's a woman or a man, except, again, our hyper-sexualized age seems to care about that all the time and yell about it, so we make big deals out of molehills. Ignore that and see what's there. This is the ultimate queen, and more than that, she's the ultimate provider. She is, in fact, a religious queen, right? So that when wisdom builds her house and hews her seven pillars— and then begins to slaughter beasts, this don't sound like most homes I visit, right? Like this is a little more than just a house. This is a religious place, a, a temple, you could call it that. And what is being done then is Solomon is trying to show how that temple that he builds is bigger than even, even what is there, which we know from the prophets see this later. But that wisdom's temple, the temple of God in the skies and the heavens, the temple of Jesus Christ, is indeed complete and total, even before Christ comes and fulfills the sacrifice. A uh, bit of a mystery here, but Revelation tells us that Christ died before the foundation of the world. He was crucified before the foundation of the world. How does that even happen? Wisdom built her house. It's not only a home. It's not only a body, Jesus' body. It's also a religion and a temple. Now, this will come to bear in Ephesians here in a moment. But don't miss also the mixed wine. Uh, in the ancient world, this would have also had religious significance. It would have had festival party or marriage significance. Mixing wine, you water it down, you add spices. They didn't have vineyards quite like we have vineyards and production facilities. Wine would have been a different thing, just to say that. So mixing it with spices was very normal and necessary even. Um, so that's a good thing that she's doing this. It's good wine. Setting the table. Uh, sends out the people to call. Okay. So just don't miss how, how that calling of the people is exactly what Jesus was doing in the parable. We're not going to go back to that again, though. Let's move to our second section here where she actually says something. What she say? Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. First thing I want you to do is to zoom in on the word simple. That shows up twice there. Simple. This is one of the 15, 20 most important words in the book of Proverbs. It's introduced in Proverbs 1, verse 4. It's the first type of person who's not wise. So you either have people who know wisdom or you have people who are not wise. And they go in a variety of categories that can always be called fool. But the simple hasn't really become technically a fool yet. They just are going to be if they stay simple, okay? So the word here in Hebrew is petit, petit. You can kind of remember and hear that a little, petit. And it, it doesn't mean like, well, hold on. I even brought this for this reason. I might as well open it up and use it here, assuming I can get to it quickly enough. Uh, I knew, I, I read through this. I thought, I'll remember it, and now I really want to give it to you. So pardon as I do find myself the word come now
Now, this is that moment where I began to have a nervous breakdown in my head. Seriously, it's like I start to sweat. It's awful. Okay, there's Sheen, and then they'll be seen, and then Pei should show up, and it's not showing up. Why is it not showing up? Rish, off. Oh, come on now. I just saw it before the service, and I am so stressed out. Let's see, you get to watch me sweat. I'm going to get through it. Where are we? Okay, this is my alphabet. Hebrew alphabet's really tough. Uh, there we go. F, Zion. We're almost there. There we go, Petit. Whew. So, why did I want to get here? The word, words in Hebrew are either verb or noun. That makes sense. But they're always connected to each other in like a reciprocal relationship. So the meaning of the verb and the meaning of the noun are a little bit different. I mean, a runner and running aren't the same thing, right? But they're having this relationship. And the language does this uh, a lot in the Hebrew. So just to, to be simple or to be foolish means to be open. That's the main meaning, to be open. You're like a blank slate. But the problem is that anybody can write on you and you don't know the difference. So naive is not a bad word. Ignorant is pretty close. But here's the thing. So that's the noun. When you deal with the verb, it can mean like to, to be simple or be foolish yourself, but it mainly would mean to deceive someone else. So someone who is simple is someone who has been deceived. And they will be a fool if they continue to be deceived. This is how humans are born. This is what original sin is. It's a nice word, petit. Uh, the first type of not wise person, which you now were, but aren't anymore. That's the first thing it says in Ephesians 2.13. We're almost there. But before we go out of that, we've got to finish second section of Proverbs. We're zooming in on the word simple. Now we're going to zoom in just on, do you notice how when wisdom shows up, it says, come to my religion, you're going to eat bread and wine? Did you see that? Verse 5, eat bread and wine. It was there in Melchizedek. It's here, Lady Wisdom. Jesus comes along, 90 is betrayed. I mean, it seems to be a pattern, right? It's not accidental. Ooh, that's a pun if you know your theology, but we'll, we'll leave that hiding. Um, so leave your simple ways. Stop being open to what the world has to teach you and come to the feast of the way of insight. To come to Christ's religion. And then, okay, verses 7 through 10, more proverbial, more the way you would expect Proverbs to be. Um, I'm going to take them each at a time because they're really worth looking at here, but we're going to go backwards. We're going to go backwards. So verse 10 first. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is not the first time this idea has been brought up in the book of Proverbs. It also will show up in the book of Psalms. So it's a Davidic insight. It comes from David, but then Solomon learns it from his father and begins to use it as a phrase quite a bit, right? And this is, again, that not just the fear of the Lord, but that the fear of the Lord is wisdom or its beginning or its head. Think like where a stream would begin to flow from out of the ground, the, the head of a font, right? That becomes a river. Um, that is what the beginning of wisdom is. And wisdom is the river. And it's the fear of Jesus. The fear of Jesus Christ is the beginning of wisdom. And then to know the Father, 
is insight. Well, you know the Father where? We know this in Jesus Christ. Again, I'm going I'm to do two things here. I'm going to go the short, fast, easy answer. What's the fear of the Lord? And then I'm going to give you the longer reason why you should care. Uh, we shouldn't lose it so fast. The easy answer is that the fear of the Lord is faith in Jesus Christ. You are aware judgment day is coming. You are aware everybody will be judged for their works, thoughts, deeds, good or evil. You are aware that everybody deserves to be sent to hell, and that is a terrifying thing. That's called the fear of the Lord. And then you heard that Jesus is going to save you from it. Ah, that's really called the fear of the Lord. It's the good one. Uh, It takes the other fear, and it makes it on your side. So that now, whatever other fears you face, the fear behind you is greater than the fear in front of you. This is the fear you ought to have of your father. Sometimes good fathers can provide this in where you love and fear at once. It's hard to talk about, though, because fallen men are just bad at fearing God, <laughs> honestly. Our problem is not that we are too afraid of God. Our problem is that we are not afraid of God enough. We do not think he will punish us. He says, don't do it. We do a little of it. Nothing seems to happen. We do a little more of it. Nothing seems to happen. We changed the whole civilization in 15 years. Nothing's happened yet. And we don't believe that the punishment will come. And what he does again and again through history is he says, here, here's the truth. And you're like, I want to lie. He's like, okay. I want another lie. If you say so. I want another lie. Okay. You want another lie. I'm going to destroy you now. Okay. He does it. Because, well, because, I don't know. The crux telegorum, why some, not others. Why do I believe? Why don't others believe? I don't know. Jesus is the answer to that. His election of you, you believe, is the answer of that. You believing means the fear of Jesus, the beginning of wisdom, has entered you, whether you can talk about it in that language or not. And so then you must confess with our small catechism, yeah, that to trust, excuse me, to uh, the first commandment to have no other gods is to fear and love and trust in God above all things. So what am I trying to do? I'm trying to rehabilitate the word fear as a good word. You're going to be afraid in life. It comes like anger, right? Anger comes, is it always good? No, but sometimes it actually is. It's kind of how bravery works, honestly. Uh, And so similarly, fear. You're going to have fear. The question is, how do you face your fear of men? Do you face your fear of men with the fear of God or without it? without it. The beginning of wisdom face with the fear of God. Number nine, going backwards again, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Behind the scenes in the Hebrew, you have a vocabulary being used. That word insight is a word from chapter one, verse two, discipline. Uh, It means to practice it. To practice it, to do it, to have it happen, right? Um, so uh, give instruction to a wise man, he'll be wiser still. Make it so that he does it, and he'll be wiser still. You want to raise your kids when they're young? Don't ask them what they want to do. Do what they want to do. Make them do it. Tell them to do it. Do it with them, right? Asking them for their opinions like asking, again, a simple person what's good for them. They're not going to know. So give instruction to one who's wise, he'll be wiser still. Verse 8 is the same idea, but now with its antithesis, its backwards piece, which is, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reproving a wise man, he will love you. That's just giving a wise man more wisdom, right? As it said a moment ago. But do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. The scoffer is another character in Proverbs. So we've introduced 
Petit, the simple today, the first one. From the simple, you have ways that you can travel in foolishness, and one of them leads you to be a scoffer. And a professor told me in seminary, the scoffer is the worst one. I've yet to dig that out of the Hebrew myself, but I'm expecting to find that there, that the scoffer is worse than a fool. A fool is still kind of ignorant, and a scoffer, he likes it. He thinks his ignorance is wisdom. He's very proud of it. So a scoffer is someone that, uh, well, you find when you talk to somebody who already knows everything, you don't come away feeling real great. It's because you got yourself some abuse there is what happened. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't let someone else's narcissism rule your life effectively. Uh, a scoffer and a narcissist, same thing, not exactly. But one who says, I know everything and I don't need God and I'll tell you the way it is, that person's going to hurt everyone around them. And if you go into their life to try to fix it, well, what he says is you're not going to be able to fix it. Rather, where do you go? The end of the verse, end of the section, fear of Jesus, right? Fear of Jesus. The answer for the scoffer is prayer. And honestly, if you take the proverb seriously, distance. You stay away from the scoffer. The scoffer is the devil's agent to distract you from talking to the person who wants to listen to you or who wants to be your friend or who wants to have a biblical relationship with you. The scoffer comes in and kind of wastes your life by trying to tell you to do other stuff or be a different person, more like they would be or they are. And usually that would involve laughing at God or the scriptures in some way. Yeah. Uh, so, but you can, again, you can see the application of this, I hope, very directly. All right. Moving on again. Last gear shift here into Ephesians. Uh, I mentioned before, uh, such were some of you, right? Now, how you were indeed the simple. You are born the one who is originally sinful and unclean. You know that. Many of you have walked your way into church uh, over a lifetime. It hasn't been like from six years old on, you're like, yay, Jesus, right? It comes and goes, maybe goes all the way or never was there. You grew up without it, and now you're here. All of us are in that same boat, all of us. And, and Paul's point isn't just Gentiles, right, but all humans. But he emphasizes how Jews and Gentiles were different, were, in order to emphasize how all of humanity has been bound into this one Jesus Christ. And by the end of that, we're going to be back at eating bread and wine together as the actual temple of the Holy Spirit, not in the future, but today. Today. Okay. So let's see if we can get there in the text, though. It's, it's a potent idea. It's a potent idea. You're here to have the Holy Spirit inhabit you more again forever today. It's a big idea. So starting with this whole talk about Jew versus Gentile for the first three or four verses, Ephesians 2, verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, as anybody who was not a Jew or a God-fearer trying to find God at the temple in Jerusalem prior to 70 AD, you who were not those Jewish people, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So sheep, bulls, goats, Isaiah's prophecies and Solomon's wisdom, it goes and it comes, it goes and it comes. Now something different is happening. Now something's going out to grab you and bring you in. Huh? You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And don't miss, I haven't gotten to talking about wine yet, but every time the Bible speaks about the blood of Christ, you should understand that not as just him walking around a long time ago, but as him, the man, God, reigning over heaven and earth with a human body filled with blood right now, which you will drink from 
as wine in just a little bit. You have been brought near by fat. Which again means that every time you come here, you're part of what you see as a life in time that is actually from God's point an eternal reality of you always being in Jesus. And he gives you Sabbath, he gives you Mass, he gives you the Supper so that in a fallen time you can keep seeing it. Whereas on the last day it's just going to be who we are. Will we have an eight-day week, a seven-day week? I don't know. It, It won't matter. It'll be what it is. Right now, what is, is this. And the more you can understand how this blood is here for you on this altar, locally, proximately, physically, so that your confidence can be in Christ and not yourself, the more as a group you believe that, I tell you, the more people will just be here. You'll just be here because you'll want to be here with each other, not just to hear me talk, but to begin to hear each other talk about what you've found and how good it's been that God has been your God. And don't hear me saying, I'm going to manufacture this. I'm not going to pressure you. None of that's going to happen. What's going to happen is, as you finally start reading the Proverbs and praying the Psalms at home, in and with all of this preaching over the next five years, and as we start having family time between the services out there and people stay late and come early, it's just going to happen. We're just going to be a Bible-believing group of people. That's why you're coming to church still. It's why you're here. It's why we made the jump. Believe that that will be. Yeah, trust in that. And then, okay, so that, that, that was just the blood of Christ, okay? <laughs> I, went, I went deep on him. Uh, so he himself is our peace, verse 14 says. Remember, this is about, though, bringing together two groups who were divided. This is about Jew and Gentile. And at the time, particularly, the Jews who said, if you're not one of us, you don't get to see God more or less ever. You can stand out there and maybe he'll be nice to you. Christ has abolished that so as to teach that nobody can say that. So let me back off here again and maybe go straight at the the target. The reason why it's important to to see how, how racist, how racist the Jews were in the zero to first century AD. Unbelievably racist people. Hateful. Cruel. Bigots. And then to see how many of them repented of that because Jesus rose from the dead and then went out among people who they found to be filthy, disgusting, hillbilly, thoughtless, godless, puking idiots. And they said to them, he rose for you too. Come learn what he would teach. They had a bit of a fight about what should be taught. The Old Testament was kept. They said, watch out for a few things. Don't kill people. Don't commit adultery. Don't worship demons. (laughs) Pretty obvious stuff. But it changed them in a different way than just us being good now. It saw that the evil guy who is your enemy is actually your brother. Whoever he is. He's always your brother. The two have been made one in Christ. So then, how does this apply today? Did I get, did I get uncomfortable when I said racism? Can, can white people talk about racism? Are we allowed to? Can I say that I'm white on TV? And like, can I not be ashamed of it? Is it possible? Now, if you're like, ah, it's because they're gaslighting you. On TV for the last, oh, probably 15 years, they've been slowly changing the way people feel about things. And one of the things that's 
popular and right to believe right now is that white people are guilty. We're just guilty. We're shameful. Why? Racism. Does it matter who you are, your life? No, no, no. Just you're white. You're like, this isn't true. Yes, it is. It's called critical race theory. They teach it in the schools. It's been adopted by the administration now. It's official. They're not going to come right at you and tell you that. They're going to teach your kids that when you pay $40,000 a year for them to leave the faith. And they're going to take all of us over time and gaslight us into believing that it's bad to be white. And we'll be like, yes, yes, we'll pay more taxes. Now, pay taxes, whatever. It's Caesar's. The point is that this church ain't for white people. That's the point. I said to the early service today, everybody who is a member attending at our church right now is a Japhethite. We're all Japhethites. We got no Hamites. And if the Shemites are here, they hide. I, I do know we have one lady who's partial Shemite by blood. Shemites are tough. The Persians and the Jews. Who are they? Very few now. They kind of got mixed in and, and muddled. But the Japhethites, these are the ones who went kind of north and east after Babel. They end up in places like Norway and Japan. You wouldn't think we're that closely related, but no, we really are. Uh, both culturally, linguistically, uh, and, and heritage-wise, the way family structures operate are very similar. And if you go to the Hamites, that's largely the African area, although not only. Um, they also have a certain culture and overlap that they continue to share as very broad, ancient ideas. Why am I saying this? Well, right now, we're supposed to believe we're either white or black or brown or, or LBTQ, other things that somehow also have the same quality of being able to tell you not to be who you are. And I reject all of those categories as unbiblical ways of being a person or thinking. So if you want to talk to me about who I am as a race, I'm going to start with Japhethite. I'm going to end with Scottish. And if you're going to tell me what I owe anybody in terms of my shame, I'm going to tell you I do not need to be ashamed for being born a debt servant of the American government who just happens to be this skin color and happens to have had some better schooling than some other debt servants of the American government. Now again, why am I saying all of this? Because I'm not going to let us as a congregation be ashamed of being mostly white, or mostly Japhethite, because it is kind of all the same over history, nor am I going to let us think that it's okay or right to think it's only for us. I'm not going to let us believe that it's actually healthy for the church to be divided. Because the text says he's made peace between the two who were apart. He's made them one. Does that mean every congregation needs to be a scattering? Do we need status quotas and everything to make sure? No, 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 no. I'm just not going to let us forget there's no such thing as race. It's a big story they're using to keep the money system flowing and deal with global trade and blah, blah, and Davis and 23. I don't know. I don't care. We are a people of God blessed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And no matter who your father or your mother is, what language you speak, what culture you come from, and what traumas they have done to you, Jesus is your king. He wants you here. And I'll be your pastor. Because it doesn't matter to me what color my skin is or what color somebody else's skin is or whether we dress different or smell different or eat different unless it's about that supper. There we eat the same.
And if there I eat the same with you, I'm your brother, not just till we die. I'm your brother forever. And again, to let them out there divide our message over the nonsense of their debt gambling game, if you don't know what that is, ask me, I'll tell you. They're looting the country. The communists have done it before in other places. They're doing it now. Now, I don't care again. It's going to come and go. Christians are going to live through it. Talking about politics, that's out there. But what they're doing with it is they're merging it with religion. You felt it with the masks, and you're going to feel it more again as they seek to divide us over things that don't divide, black and white. There's no division there. It's a man-made idea. I'm harping on it a little, I suppose. I grew up with Martin Luther King. I believe what he said. And to, to hear in this day that we're where we are, we're so far removed from where we were in the 80s and 90s, and they did that to us with the TV. So if we want it back, it's because we're unashamed to believe that it's okay to be white. It's okay to be in a white church, and black people are welcome here. It's okay to be black. It's okay to be in a black church, and white people are welcome there. Because in Christ, if you're going to be in Christ, then you're in Christ. And our division should be over things like, is he God or not? Not, what do I dress like? What do I look like? What do I smell like? What do I eat? That's the point. I've used so much time on the point to go through the text a little quickly here. Verse 14, Jesus is our peace. He has made us both one, you and me, everybody. All of us, one in him. One man dead, one man risen forever. New race. There's your racism. Christianity is a new race. He has broken down in his flesh, that's his actual body, that died and rose, pierced, the dividing wall of hostility between us all, Jews especially, abolishing the law and commandments and ordinances. But what is that? It was a bunch of reasons they thought they were better than everybody else by the time it happened. And so now he says again, what are you looking at to tell yourself you're better than everybody else? Uh, I'll be honest here. This might get me in trouble. I'm, I'm dead serious. We're on YouTube. I said to my wife, it's frustrating now because I have a moment at a store where I'm looking a human in the eye and I'm wanting to be kind. And I think she is a woman, but I don't know. And then in my heart, I try to know, just to know, who are you? And I find myself then feeling really bad. And I'll tell you why. This is awful. It's because I think the woman looks like a man. And I feel so horrible that I've judged her beauty. Why? And why did they make me do that with their programming? Hmm. Hmm. See it? So, I'm not better than a transvestite or a transgender person I buy gas from. I'm not better. Ask me, I'll tell you. I'll tell you now about my, my complex. But I'm saved. I'm baptized. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, and everybody can be. There's one thing He's not going to let you keep hating yourself. He's not going to let you keep destroying yourself. He's not going to let you cut major pieces of your body off. I mean, he loves you. He loves you. Let's go on with verse 17. He came and preached peace to you 
who are far off, and peace to you who are near, those who are near, right? Jew, Gentile brought together, no divisions. Through him, Christ alone, we both, that's everybody, everybody, have access in one spirit. Remember, we just had Pentecost, yeah? The spirit's in us, one spirit to the Father. Let's look at the math of this. The word of God, the Bible, comes out of my mouth and off the page into your ears and head, and you believe it. That's the Holy Spirit. He's working inside you at that moment. You're believing he's doing it, and he makes you speak it back out again, and that is access to the Father and his infinite light. That is Jesus working upon you as king, and that is God inhabiting your body. The words are God inhabiting your body. You're possessed by the words. That's why if you don't read the words, you don't study the words, you don't confess the words, you feel weak. You feel weak. You need to be filled. You need, you need to eat this stuff. But again, then access by the Spirit who's inside of you to the Father in the words so that you are no longer strangers and aliens but fellow citizens with the holy ones. That word saints there is the holy ones. It's to be anybody who's in God's will. Uh, all the Old Testament holy ones. Any character of the Old Testament you might think of is encompassed in this. Members of the household of God. And then verse 20, he's pushing towards scripture again. See how he says that being this Christian, this word-filled, spirit-word-filled person, means you're founded on the apostles and the prophets. That's just a summary. New Testament, Old Testament. Just, just take it as that. New Testament, Old Testament. That's the foundation. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. If you miss out on Jesus being raised from the dead in God after reading the Bible, you missed it. He's the cornerstone. None of it makes sense if you don't get that, right? So you need that part. But knowing Jesus is king, knowing Jesus is God, knowing he saved you by his blood as the lamb, now again, apostles and prophets, every word, the Holy Spirit going into you, going into you with the promise he will come out of you as you start to change how you talk, how you think. Yeah? Ah. Fellow citizens, cornerstone, there it is. Verse 21, in Christ, the whole structure being joined together, catch the temple language, the temple language. The whole structure grows into a holy temple, seven pillars of wisdom in the Lord. In him, you also, slow down, circle that you. It's plural, it's plural. You, group, you, the congregation, you, us together right now this morning are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. How? You're hearing the words, you're writing them down, you're seeing them again, you're beginning to believe them. Someday they'll come out of your mouth. God is inhabiting you by the Holy Spirit as his temple, the body of Jesus Christ, already risen to the highest heaven, active as the church in this age, coming again to make good on all of it for us to see, still shouting, it's free, it's free, come to my table, come and eat bread and wine. Oh my, but it's more, it's so much more, is it not? Habakim Bajashua Kahar Zion, Lo Yamot, Lo Lam Yashev. You got it. You were together. Now you need his chutzpah and confidence next time. We'll leave that for next time. In the name of Jesus. Amen.